Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and in today's special episode, we celebrate the Blu-ray release of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse with a look back at Sam Raimi's beloved Spider-Man 2 with special guest Lonnie Diane Rich from Chipperish Media and the Listen Up A-Holes podcast. Had the narrative been structured a little bit better, had we made Peter not such a passive protagonist, where things just sort of happened to him rather than him actively going out and, and making things happen. I think that we could have gotten to all of that like really crunchy philosophical stuff so much faster and we could have hit it so much better. Later, we're joined by Listen Up A-Hole's other co-host and also a contributor at the Cinematropolis, Joshua Unruh, to discuss why Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse actually surpasses Spider-Man 2 and becomes the new gold standard for Spider-Man and superhero movies. That tension is perhaps even sharper for Miles than it ever was for Peter because you have his dad, the police officer who doesn't like the vigilante on one side, mm-hmm. and his uncle who is... A criminal, a thief, a, a, by all accounts, a very bad man. And Miles is pulled in those two directions constantly. It's all coming at you next. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the first part of today's two-part conversation on our favorite Spider-Man movies. Now, again, I am the host and the editor-in-chief of the Cinematropolis.com, Caleb Masters, and to discuss what is arguably the best Spider-Man movie and oftentimes described as one of the best superhero movies of all time. We're joined for the first time by a very special host, Lonnie Diane Rich, the founder of Chipperish Media and co-host of Listen Up A-Holes. Lonnie, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Well, hey, Caleb, thank you so much for having me. It's really fun to talk about a movie that is, you know, (laughs) pre-MCU, because I haven't engaged with a whole lot of those yet. We've been living in the MCU for several months now. I have. I haven't. It's been a lot of fun. Like, I'm not actually a, um, like, a superhero or comic book expert in any way. I'm just really interested. I'm I'm a story expert. I'm interested in the narrative elements. And with an expansive universe, like you get, you know, with these comic books, and then with the MCU, uh, it was just too much for me to, to pass up. So being able to talk to like comic book scholars like yourself, like Joshua, uh, it's so, so much fun for me. Excellent. Well, I'm really thrilled. I've, I've really loved you guys' conversation uh, on Listen Up A-Holes, oh, and uh, it's you. a pleasure to have you on. Uh, now, maybe you could tell our listeners, of course, Listen Up A-Holes is an MCU podcast where you guys do a breakdown uh, film by film, and you're even tackling the MCU TV shows. Now, maybe you could uh, give listeners uh, a little bit more insight into that show, but also everything you do over at Chipperish Media. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, Chipperish Media is basically um, about loving what you love. Our, our motto is love what you love. Because we do talk about all of the things that we love, but there's also problems. There's There are things that you can talk about. There's meat on the bone, you know. Um, so one of the things that we do at Chipperish is we just are really into appreciating the things that we love completely, which also includes, you know, having some criticisms. Um, so right now we're doing the MCU with Listen Up A-Holes. I have a podcast called Still Pretty, where we look at Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I have Still Dead, where we look at uh, the spinoff from Buffy, the Angel series. Um, we're also doing uh, Star Wars. We have a, a series coming out called Metaphors Be With You, um, which is really interesting. Star Wars done with uh, Rob Hyrett. Um, and next year, the next big thing we're going to tackle is the TV series Lost, um, because all of these things speak to really interesting issues and problems and innovations in dealing with narrative. And for me, it's all about narrative. But the flagship show for Chipperish is How Story Works, which is my show that I do talking about uh, narrative theory um, and basically just explaining for writers and for people who appreciate stories, um, basically how story works. So um, it's a lot of fun. You can find everything you want uh, about Chipperish at chipperish.com. Excellent. Chipperish Media, guys. Check it out. Well, with that said, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and web-sling our way into our analysis of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Gives us strength, makes us noble. Even though sometimes we have to give up the thing we want the most. Barker! Where you been? Looking for you all morning. You're late. Always late. You're fired. Look at your Peter. Your grades have been declining. You always appear exhausted. I know. I'm trying. So where you been, pal? You don't return my calls. I've been kind of busy. Taking pictures of your friend. Spider-Man killed my father. No matter what I do. Do you love me or not? No matter how hard I try. I want Spider-Man dead. It's the ones I love who will always be the ones who pay. I can't keep thinking about you. I'm getting married. I want a life of my own. I'm Spider-Man. No more. All right, so the IMDb synopsis of Spider-Man 2 reads, Peter Parker is beset with troubles in his failing personal life as he battles a brilliant scientist named Dr. Otto Octavius. That's a really vague IMDb synopsis uh, <laughs> per the normal, but uh, I mean, I guess it's technically accurate. Lonnie, let's just go ahead and jump in. I, I really want to get your take on the film. What did you think of Spider-Man 2 after you finished it? Um, well, I have to say, I had a very mixed reaction to Spider-Man 2. What I loved, I loved completely. And what bothered me, you know, was kind of a drawback. Um, your audience is probably going to hate me. <laughs> so I'm just letting them know right away. I do have criticisms of this movie. Um, one of the things that I talk about a lot in my work are primary values. That there are, this is the reason why, you know, you go to a movie with somebody, you have the same experience. And yet you love a movie and they hate it, you know. And it really comes down to primary values. What is it that you go to these stories to get, you know? Um, and for me, I have two primary values. The big one is narrative. Um, I want the story to be properly structured, properly told, because that does make it more engaging. There are certain things that you can do within a story that will structure it in a way, escalate it properly, give you good character movements, and then make you really feel it to its, you know, to its, its, its maximum extent. Um, so for me, on the narrative side, Spider-Man 2 was a bit of disappointment. But 
My other primary value, well, I guess I guess my secondary, but like, you know, real uptight, uh, up close secondary is philosophy. I love when a story asks really interesting, crunchy questions, especially questions that don't have an easy answer. I love identity stories, you know. Um, So what Spider-Man 2 delivers on so well are the philosophical questions. You know, what is your responsibility? With great power comes great responsibility is one of the classic hallmarks of Spider-Man, right? Um, and you've got this kid who is saddled with this this power that he didn't ask for, that he didn't want, but now that he has it, what is he going to do with it? And what are the sacrifices that you have to make? And then you've got this huge identity question. You know, who are you? Are you just who you are? Are you the choices that you make? Are you the things that you want? Um, you know, and what is the nature of sacrifice, you know, and sacrificing for the greater good? Like, I think there are a lot of things that this movie asks that are absolute catnip to me. So while on the one hand, I think part of the reason why I was so disappointed in the narrative is because had the narrative been structured a little bit better, had we made Peter not such a passive protagonist where things just sort of happened to him rather than him actively going out and and making things happen. Um, I think that we could have gotten to all of that like really crunchy philosophical stuff um, so much faster and we could have hit it so much better. Um, But I have to say, I I am both disappointed in this movie and I really love it. I think that's a very good nuanced take there because this film is not perfect. I, I mean, okay, let, let me be wrong. I'm with you. I, I actually love it for all the reasons you're talking about because I do think it has a lot of very core central ideas that really permeate most of uh, at least the character arcs, especially the, the struggle that we see with Peter Parker about, hey, how much of, uh, who, who am I, right? You ask all those questions and how much do, of myself do I have to give up for the greater good? Should I give it up for the greater good? Because because uh, I think, it, you know, you see Peter Parker, who, as you said, he has this power and he still hasn't figured out quite how to balance his life and his responsibility as Peter Parker to his family, being Mary Jane, being Aunt May, being uh, Harry Osborne and his duty to the people of New York City or at least the responsibility as he sees it. And also, he's still haunted a little bit by the the ghost of Uncle Ben a little bit. Always that voice, kind of his conscience echoing in the back of his head, telling him oh, what it, what he should be doing. And he hasn't quite figured out how to interpret that and fit that into both of those characters. So I think it does that really well. Structurally, yeah, this film's uh, it's a little messy. I think it has a strong start, strong ending. It, it gets real muddled in the middle. The thing about this movie that, that really took me back is it, it's very episodic, which is something I'd kind of forgotten about. Okay, we have P- Spider-Man does this thing. Cool. And then he, he goes, family scene. All right, he meets with MJ. He meets with Harry. You know, one of those characters. And then he goes back. Something else happens. Doc Ock robs a bank. These episodes don't necessarily flow one into it to another. It, it really feels like vignette, 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 vignette. And there's definitely like a, a loose line driving the plot but it really doesn't feel like it's super cohesive uh, at least not uh, for me on this particular viewing did you actually get to catch either the first spider-man or the third one before watching this movie um, I have seen the first one. I saw the the first one, um, I have to say, years ago, like when it came out, you know, <laughs> I have a big memory of it. I really did like it. I remember really enjoying it. Um, and uh, and it was it was a lot of fun. So I, I remember liking that. Of course, I love seeing Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell is basically Sam Raimi's um, uh, Stan Lee, right? You yes. know, he's got to show up in everything, right? Yeah, good so luck charm. Him, yeah. <laughs> we have him here again, you know. Um, so that was always fun for me because, of course, as, as a kid, I'd seen Evil Dead. 
head. And that was always, you know, look at my boomstick and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, so that was fun. But, uh, but no, I haven't seen the third one. And I hadn't seen the second one until you invited me to do this. And I watched it. It's a fresh perspective. Yeah. It, it is because I want to know, do you think, does this feel like a, a good solid part two of a trilogy? Because there is a trilogy, one, two, and three. When you're in three, you're like, okay, there are certain plot threads they clearly wrap up. And of course, Sam Raimi doesn't come back for a fourth one. So I'm curious, do you feel like this is a strong part two? Well, yeah, I mean, but there is there is a pattern to trilogies, right? The problem with trilogies is that the first one is really exciting because you're starting, you're setting everything up, you're taking whoever your protagonist is, and you're putting them in an unfamiliar environment, and you're challenging them, right? And then the third one is always really fun, because that's the big moment. That's whatever it is we've been building up for the first two movies, we finally see, you know, kind of kind of finish up and, and escalate and climax in the third one, right? So the middle um, chapter, you know, is always, always difficult. It's difficult when you're writing a three-act story. You know, the the second act is always a nightmare because it's connective tissue, because it sometimes lacks the excitement, you know, of the start and the finish. Um, and then you've just kind of pulled that together. Now, the thing I think that's nice about this one is that it does ask those really crunchy philosophical questions, which are a great way to kind of get us to where we need to go for the final and like arc our character through this space. So that by the time he gets to three, he knows what he is. He's ready to do that. He's had the struggle of identity and he can go into that with purpose. And dear God, I haven't seen Spider-Man 3, but dear God, please let Peter not be passive in Spider-Man 3. Passive is not the right word I would use, but uh, certainly uh, he's, he takes an interesting uh, left turn, you could say. It'll be, it'll be a Well, I'm definitely going to have to watch it now. Um, but yeah, his, his passivity, I think, is the biggest problem that we have. And honestly, the things that make us second um, episode in a trilogy a problem aren't the problems with this movie the like you were talking about the episodic thing right and the thing is is that when you're adapting from an original some original material right you kind of take the flavor of that material into the show with you and you have to figure out how to adapt it now comic books of course are by nature very episodic um, and I think that you're absolutely right and onto something there we do have a very episodic like this happens it's over then this happens it's over then this happens it's over. I don't, I don't think we even get to Octavius until like an hour into the movie where he has that moment where he becomes the bad guy, you know? So up until then, we're having all of these, you know, kind of this series of, you know, unfortunate events for Peter. And Peter is just like, things are happening to him and everything's going bad. And it's, and none of it is because of anything that he's doing. None of it is his fault. It's just happening to him, you know, and his, his essential passivity, except when there's somebody in trouble and he gets to be spider-man when he's spider-man he's active but as peter he's incredibly passive and i think that becomes a problem one of the places where this was actually done really really well was in the uh the first captain america movie over in the mcu um and uh, the, uh, the first avenger right um in that one we had these episodic stories that were kind of going through and it felt like a serial but they all were building up to the same thing at the same you know even though they were working like episodes in like a 
a TV series or like a comic book series, each episode needs to take the bigger story and pass it along. Kind of like Peter, you know, in the train car at the end, like everybody lifts them up and they all pass them on to the next one, you know. Um, so in the best circumstances, you can absolutely do that in a movie and give yourself like a five or six act movie. That's completely legit. But you need to make sure that they build into each other, that whatever it is that in, in a particular episode remains unfinished, gets handed on to the next one and escalated from there. And I think that's kind of the problem with Spider-Man 2 is that the first, I don't know, hour of the movie for the most part is, you know, Peter's miserable. He can't have these relationships he wants to have. He can't be honest with the people he loves. Um, he can't tell MJ that he loves her. You know, there's all of this stuff. He's, you know, losing his job. He doesn't have any money. He's going to get kicked out of his apartment. You know, all of this stuff. Uh, May's losing her house. You know, it's like everything. It's just bad, 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 bad. But none of it is a consequence of anything he's really done. He, he is essentially blameless in everything. And that's not where you get your best character work. You get your best character work when your protagonist is actively in pursuit of a goal. And it's because they're in pursuit of that goal that they end up having these conflicts, that these things happen, you know? And I think we get that a little bit in that he's he's actively being Spider-Man, which is causing him to, you know, not be able to show up or not be able to get the, or the pizzas on time. I guess he used Spider-Man to actually do it, you know? Um, not show up for MJ's play. Like, there are certain things that happen because he's Spider-Man, he's out saving people. Um, but a lot of it was just this essential passivity and this sad sack, you know, refrain of, you know, doesn't it suck to be Peter, you know? Um, and I think that it that's when it becomes a problem um, because he's not, we don't see him in love with being Spider-Man. You know, if, if this is a good internal conflict, and I think the essence of Spider-Man 2 is about that internal conflict, a good internal conflict is when a character wants two things that are mutually exclusive. Um, but we don't see him wanting Spider-Man or wanting that identity or even really seeming to enjoy it that much, you know, and because he doesn't want it because he's saddled with it, it has this very kind of like, you know, sad sack feel to it. And it kind of makes the first half of the movie sort of a sludge. I don't know. It does for me. Is that how you felt? A little bit. I think that what they're trying to do is make Peter uh, relatable and beat by, by beating him down. I think there's something to the passivity that you're, you're talking about here, because it's one thing when you have a, a couple of things that happen but it's like it goes through every single aspect of his life and showing how it's terrible <laughs> you're right i you know the, the one thing i can say about how they did spider-man and you're right it doesn't really show him having fun but i will say he seems like he has more personality is more assertive as you say when he's spider-man when he's yeah. spider-man but when he's peter parker thinking about being spider-man it's always a chore but when he's actually spider-man you feel like this is who the guy is so I feel right. like it, it, it show, so it does the whole like showing not telling but whenever peter's telling us with this internal monologuing or we see him making excuses uh to mary jane it's always like oh woe is me and the spider-man is a curse but when he actually is spider-man that's when i'm like okay he's fun and he's quippy and he's having a good time so it seems like an inconsistent representation of he almost seems split right you know um so yeah i mean i think that i would have liked to have seen him more when he's peter parker being 
you know, kind of jazzed by being Spider-Man, like looking forward to doing it, even if it is escape an escape from the, the misery of his personal life, you know? Um, and I never get that sense from him. And that makes it a little difficult because I think you do when he's Spider-Man, he's quippy, he's fun, he's flying from building to building. Um, so, so some of that, I feel like if we had had him more active, you know, in the beginning, if we'd had him actively pursuing something, you know, of being Spider-Man that was mutually exclusive with what he wants in his personal life, I could see that, you know, when he does the things that make him Spider-Man, then MJ is mad at him, you know, like missing her play, right? So we do get some of that, but I think that it's it's not structured strongly enough um, and it's not, it isn't expressed with enough clarity to really make it work. Right. And I, I want to say this is a combination of a couple of different things. I, I want to say it's an intentional choice from the writer-director Sam Raimi to keep him more passive. And I think the, I really do think the attempt is to make him relatable, be an everyman, almost be like a like an avatar sort of character for the audience. Like, oh man, I know what it's like to have a bad day. Um, so, oh, that's awful. But at the same time, because of that, I can't really get a strong sense of what makes Peter actually happy he's a he's kind of a people pleaser but he can't seem to please anybody uh, so i can kind of relate to that but outside of that i don't really get a, get a sense for what like what's thrilling about being spider-man or even heck what is thrilling about being peter parker and i know the whole point of the movie is to say is to demonstrate that oh he's kind of in a, in a low spot but there's not a really he really doesn't have strong characteristics and then of course the other uh, other side of that is uh toby mcguire's performance as well i don't hate toby mcguire as peter parker or spider-man but i do really think I just didn't get a good sense for what is driving Peter Parker specifically, other than his desire to please people. I, I would like to talk a little bit about Peter and, and then a little bit about maybe his journey and lessons he learned in the film. Did you feel like he'd grown by the time we reached the end of the film? Um, I think to a certain extent, I mean, I think that, you know, in the beginning, you know, we have this identity, you know, conflict, which, which is, you know, a staple of superhero, right? You know, I'm going to do this thing, but I have to keep my identity, you know, secret. So when, when I'm not Spider-Man, when I'm not Superman, I've got, I've got glasses on and nobody knows, you know, um, but it's also this, this essential split of self, you know, and one of the things that I really liked about what we did in this movie is that we go from this fracture sense of self into a um, kind of a repaired sense of self that he is not Spider-Man and you know, or Peter, that he is both together, you know, and finding a way to sort of get that synthesis. And I'm sort of hoping that that's that synthesis is something that allows him to move into uh, Spider-Man three with a with a stronger sense of purpose again, haven't seen it. Um, but uh, but I so I do like that with Peter, although the only reason anybody finds out is by accident. You know, like it's the people on the on the train see him because he's passed out. Um, Harry sees him because he's passed out. Um, you know, uh, Mary Jane sees him because they're in the middle of a fight and his his face, his face mask is off, you know. Um, I, this is the thing. Like, it's passivity. I want him to make that choice. I want him to get so frustrated that he takes off his mask and he says, okay, Mary Jane, this is who I am. I have to do this. I have to live like this. With great power comes great responsibility. So now suddenly I have to save the entire universe and I can't beat your play on time, even though that's where I'd like to be. Like, I want him to make a choice, you know? Um, so I'm disappointed by that. But overall, I feel like once... 
everybody knows his secret identity. And he's been honest with May, you know, and kind of like telling her what happened the night that Uncle Ben died. And we're sort of getting rid of all the secrets and, and lies of it. And this this sort of comes out that it allows for a synthesis of character that could make him a much stronger protagonist for the following stories. So, um, so for me, even though I would have preferred if he had just made like one choice, just one throughout this entire movie, one active choice, two, three, four would have been ideal, but even one I would have settled for. Um, I, uh, I think that it would have, it would have landed a little bit better, but I do like that at the end, we do get that synthesis of identity and this is very much an identity story. So what did you think about that? No, I, I absolutely agree. I really appreciate that. Uh, again, I mean, it's it's really in the final moments of the movie, but it really feels like he's taking ownership of what his role is. And you're right; he he doesn't actually have an active choice when revealing his identity to any of any of his family uh, in the in the film. But I will say he does actually take ownership to the fact that he tells Mary Jane. He says, "No, this is not the life for you." I am choosing to be by myself. Now, what's great, and this is what makes uh, Mary Jane a great romantic partner, which we'll get into in a second, even though I've got some problems there, she comes back and pushes back and says, no, 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 I choose this life. You don't get to choose for me. So when he does try to make that attempt to kind of live this life of solitude, it really does feel like even though Mary Jane comes back, it does feel like a moment of, I'm taking control of the life I'm going to live. And Mary Jane just happens to follow up in the closing scene and say, actually, I want to be in this too. And you can't tell me otherwise. Because there's a difference there. Like if he had said, I can't live with putting you in danger. I can't have that. You know, then that'd be one thing. But he says, you know, you can't do this because it'll put you in too much danger. You know, like he's making that decision for her. At which point I was like, Mary Jane, smack him and say, you make your own damn decisions. You're a grown woman. Right. You know, so I mean, Mary Jane, I got I got whole issues. Mary Jane is is issues out the out the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. Let's go ahead and dive into that relationship because looking back at this film definitely feels like it's from a different era. And I know Sam Raimi um, says, you know, he was very inspired by the Spider-Man comics of the 60s. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine women in comic books in the 60s probably weren't written to be particularly uh, empowered or no, have much of a voice they, at all. They exist to inspire and motivate the male characters. And these and the women in this movie are terrible. And MJ yes. is terrible. Aunt May is terrible. Um, probably the best woman we get in this is the little girl that he saves from the burning building. She is at least, you know, active and she pulls him up from when he's falling through the floor. So, I mean, like, her, I like. I thought she was great. But, yeah, the, the way that we deal with women, women solely exist to basically hold a mirror up to the male characters and reflect them back at themselves. Um, so, MJ does not feel, to me, a fully realized character. And because of that, the romance for me falls incredibly flat. I mean, you know, she's basically the woman that is handed over as a prize to our hero right. at the end because yep. he's yep. he's done all this stuff. Um, you know, like she's clearly in love with Peter, but she's, you know, dating this other guy and she's marrying this other guy solely so that we can introduce a romantic conflict. We don't need a romantic conflict. We have a romantic conflict in that the fact that she's in love with him and he won't be straight with her. Like, that's all you need. And then he tells 
tells her we can't be together because it's not, you know, it's not good for you, honey. So let me first of all, tell you and make your decisions for you. She allows that and then goes back to this other guy when she knows she's in love with somebody else. So this other guy who is in love with her, who wants to marry her, who, you know, maybe deserves a little consideration before the day of the wedding when she (laughs) walks out out on the wedding. Oh, man, which is terrible. And let me just tell you something. Every woman in a movie who has a wedding dress on and runs, I realize that's great visuals and everything, but it indicates an absolutely horrible person. You know, I mean, that's just like to run out on the day of your wedding. It's maximum drama. But if you know on the day of your wedding, you didn't want to do this, you knew the night before, unless there's something that he revealed to you the night before that kind of threw you off. Like it's, it's a bad thing to get, let it get that far. And I'm sure that does happen. And I'm sure there's reasons why. And I'm not saying that every person who's ever run out on their wedding on the day of, I mean, it's better than marrying somebody and then divorcing them a week later. That's always difficult, you know. Um, but I mean, like, the, we do this in these um, movies and because we want that drama, but then we don't make MJ face up to the weaknesses in her character that would create that situation. Like, we don't make them have any responsibility. I mean, this guy, like, is your classic rich, floppy-haired douchebag. Like, I get it, you know. Right. Yeah. But she's yeah. dating him. She's with him. She says she loves him. She's kissing him up upside down on the couch trying to make him into the guy she's actually in love with. Um, She's got this whole, she's in love with Peter. She's in love with Spider-Man. Like the only person she's not in love with is the guy she says she's going to marry. And she's marrying him because the guy that she really wants isn't available. That is not good enough for somebody. If you care about somebody enough to marry them, even if you're not in love with them, you should care about them enough to want what's best for them and to not, not give yourself to them. If you're not fully a hundred percent there, just because they're the, the next best consolation prize. That's a terrible thing to do to somebody. So MJ, we use her for maximum drama because the fact that she's getting married causes Peter all of this pain and we want to see Peter in pain. And I mean, I'm telling you, the best thing that you can possibly do when you're writing anything is torture your characters. Absolutely. But the price that we pay is a sense of MJ as a human being. And I think that that's too high a price. Like we just, there's nothing about her that is consistent or reasonable or good. You know, um, the only thing I really liked, I liked when she was so upset that he didn't show up for a play. And she says, you're my best friend and you didn't even show up. Like you can't show up for me. That conflict I found, you know, really interesting. And that really speaks to that choice that he has to make between being a hero and being somebody who can be there for MJ, you know? Um, but unfortunately it was only there so that we could cause him conflict. Everything she does is all about causing him conflict and nothing is generated from who this character is. So I have no sense of who she is as a person because from scene to scene, depending on what Peter needs, you know, narratively, that's what she is. I wholeheartedly agree. She definitely feels like an object, as you say, there to create maximum drama. I, I don't really feel like her motive. Her motivations really aren't clear at all from the get go, because as you say, we're introduced to her. Clearly, she's got feelings for Peter. Clearly, she's got feelings for Spider-Man. Right. And after that, it's just nothing she does really makes a ton of sense. Like all, all of a sudden she's dating this other guy. I get, you know what I mean? She's a, she's a periphery character. We don't really under, get a sense of why she's dating this guy, why she says yes to the proposal. And yeah, and, and again, the, the, the proposal really does feel like completely contrived and just in there specifically to make Peter upset. But I, I, I think to your point, with all this film had going on, there it could have been just as beneficial 
to write, I don't know, actual relationship problems. And I know between Peter and Mary Jane, and I know that was probably probably harder for a lot of uh, men to write. I don't know. Like it just it, it definitely feels la- like the laziest, lazier way to go about creating character drama torturing peter um because you're right it does come at the cost of mary jane as a character and you know this is a problem that's consistent throughout the trilogy i'd say um and uh i i have yet to dive back into three myself but i know it doesn't get a whole lot better so um unfortunately yeah it's a problem that happens because when you're drawing from i have this concept uh, in my teaching that i call terroir right and it is basically terroir is this concept in french that the french came up with because the french come up with lots of good stuff including wine um but this is actually about <laughs> French wine, um, where like basically whatever is in the soil gets in the grape, gets in the wine, right? So when you're pulling from source material in which women existed simply to motivate the men, um, and we see this with Rose, who is like an interesting, you know, character with uh, with Octavius, and then of course she is killed, and which is a concept from from comic books. Actually, your audience would probably <laughs> know this. So I don't explain that much. The idea of fridging, right? You know, where a woman dies solely to motivate the man. And uh, so we have this where she dies. Octavius has nothing left but his work and he throws himself into his work because Rose was was everything else to him, you know? Um, and I mean, actually, Rose was probably one of the better written women in the whole thing before we kill her solely to, you know, motivate Octavius. I can tell you she likes poetry. Yes. At least I know something about her, right? Yes, there was a little <laughs> bit of something there and she wasn't in enough scenes to become inconsistent. So at least there was that. But, you know, we have this problem with with all of these female characters. And I think it comes from, you know, stories that are written by men reflect a male perspective. And I don't have a problem with that, except that all of our stories, for the most part, have reflected a white male perspective. You know, um, white male, cis, het, Christian, generally, like all of these perspectives tend to be what we see. So the women are these, you know, mercurial things that you can't understand them and God only knows why they do what they do. So let's just make them do anything that makes our, our male character either motivates them or um, or makes them miserable or whatever, rather than actually imagining a world in which women are people, you know? Um, we whoa, whoa, yeah, hold on I know. there. No, yeah, take a moment. Out of control. <laughs> take a moment, take a breath, like I'll wait for yeah. you. Um, but I mean, it's it's not just women, it's people of color. It's, you know, um, there's there's all sorts of things that, that go on. Um, in our mass popular culture, we see it a lot. It is starting to get better, but it starts when we have people above the line who are the creative people who tell the stories who are not, you know, straight white men, right? Um, and it's not that I don't think like uh, straight white men can tell great stories. There are some of my favorite stories I've been told by straight white men. I am not anti, you know, man at all. Uh, but what I am is I want that diversity in our storytelling because as you grow up with these stories, this is what you see. And when you start telling stories, you mimic what you see. So these this in this interpretation of anything that's not straight white man um, as as something other, something mercurial, something exotic, right? You know, the exotic other is a big problem as well. Um, the magical other is a big problem as well. Um, 
So there's a lot of things that we just need to get more people telling stories. And that is the solution. It's not that we have to, you know, kick everybody who's ever been telling stories off the table. There are some great stories out there, storytellers out there who are, who are, you know, straight white men. It's just that there are far, fantastic stories that can be told from people who are not straight white men. And right, let's right. hear those as well. And I think what that's going to do is as we engage more with stories told by people who are not like us, it is going to allow everybody to be able to write better characters of all kinds in the end. And that I think is, you know, is the ultimate goal for me, of course, because primary value is narrative, right? I want better stories. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. When you, when you want better stories and you want characters whose motivations make sense, that way, whenever there's conflict in the story, like, okay, this is organic to who this character is. This drama feels real and authentic. It doesn't feel like it's just manufactured um, specifically um, revolving around one point of view. Uh, and I think that's a great point that um, the, the more the more we, we get other people at the table to tell stories, people of color and women, no, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I definitely think that that is something that is very much missing from the, the Raimi films. Uh, altogether and uh, you know it's a, again it was a different time yeah I still think these movies are pretty great but and we'll get to it kind of at the end of our conversation looking back about things that haven't aged as well this is something that uh, the, 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 the treatment of women in this film in particular uh, yeah, it sticks out like a sore thumb it, it really feels like it's just a thing of the, the the distant past even exactly and being able to call that out actually is a way to love the things that you love um, when you look at the um, the implicit bias that shows up in a lot of stories you know um, it's it's you that allows you to kind of take that out you know you like you look at it you acknowledge it you set it aside and then all the stuff that's really good you can still enjoy you don't have to throw anything out you don't have to decide that the people who told the story are terrible people that's not true you know it's just that there's a certain uh, amount of perspective that we've been gaining as more voices more diverse voices have come to the table and that's fantastic it makes you see some of these things that didn't age as well and just acknowledge them. There's, it doesn't mean that you have to condemn the storytellers who told those stories. They worked with what they knew at the time. Now we know more. Now we can do better. That's fine. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and I think, and I think, being able to call that out—that's just good film criticism. That's just good uh, story criticism. I mean, I think it's important. I do want to transition a little bit. Speaking of uh, straight white dudes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> talking a little bit about the the relationship with uh, Harry Osborn, uh, one of Peter's best friend. Uh, now you haven't seen the third one, so I guess you don't know what kind of how it concludes. I'm but guessing I am kind of curious. What happens? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think this film did a good job at setting him up as, as the arch nemesis in the, in the next film? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, one of the things that I really didn't like about a lot of these conflicts, and especially the one with Harry, is that it was so predicated on so many lies and secrets between them, right? Um, you know, he, like, Harry didn't know that his, his father had gone bad. Um, Harry didn't know that Peter was Spider-Man. You know, there was so much stuff that Harry didn't know. But Harry knew that Peter had a connection to Spider-Man. And he knew that Spider-Man killed his father and he had that resentment. And that at least was a, was a genuine conflict between them, you know? Um, so at the end, when Harry knows everything, he knows everything. He knows that his father was the bad guy. He actively chooses. See, this is why active choice is important. He actively chooses to pick up where his father left off, you know, with the evil and go after Peter. And I kind of like seeing that. I like seeing what that um 
you know, what that grief of losing his father did to him. Um, I like seeing that the, the failure with Octavius here, he is a young man trying to pick up where his father left off and then failing because he backed the wrong horse. Like that, I think is really like a great thing. What that does to Harry. Um, When Harry discovers that he's Spider-Man, that, that essence of just feeling incredibly betrayed, not just that Peter had lied to him, but that Peter was actually the guy who'd killed his father. Um, And then knowing in the end, what his father was completely and actively choosing to like pick up that mantle and be full on evil and go after Spider-Man. Like, I love all of that. I think it's great. This is one of the, the elements of the, the trilogy aspect that I think works phenomenally well. Is The strongest element is the relationship between Peter and Harry throughout the entire series because you have uh, their best friends in high school. They click. Norman weirdly really resents Harry for a lot of reasons that aren't super clear. But, he man, he loves Peter because he's a smart guy. He's into science. So there's already that animosity. Like, they're best friends. But also, man, why does my dad like you so much more than he likes me? Yeah. There's, like, that brother thing. Mm-hmm. And then um, after the after after the death you see that harry tries to become even more like his father because yeah. you see him in the in the first film he just kind of doesn't really care and this film he's got the suit he's all business he's backing audio octavius um and uh it really feels like he's trying to, be, to become the man his father was because he feels like that's who he's supposed to be and who he was always supposed to be he just didn't care before and also so he can kind of one-up peter a little bit and in that way as well um but yeah whenever the betrayal it all it, it actually only reinforces that decision at the end is uh, that yes he does pick up the the goblin uh, equipment he does and says this is who I'm going to be because that's who he's wanted to be the entire time he wants to be the man his father was yeah I mean that's who he is which I absolutely love and I also love that once again we go into a split identity I love identity stories which is part of the reason why superhero stories really tick boxes for me you know because you've got this sense of split identity and who am I you know am I this thing that happened to me or am I the choices that I make because this thing happened to me. And you have Harry kind of making that choice. But I also love too one of the things that we don't do a lot, which I really love that we do here, um, is the idea of men in community, right? Uh, We have women in community and men are rogue heroes who work alone until they find the right woman who then brings them into found family, right? That is the story we tell over and over again. Watch Guardians of the Galaxy. It's there. It's always there, right? The guy, I work alone. And then he finds a woman and the woman pulls him in, you know? What I love about this is that we do have that men in community. We have um, we have Peter's relationship with Uncle Ben. We have Peter's relationship with Harry. You know, um, these are masculine relationships that are based in love, that are based in emotion, that are based in connection. It's not about you know being you know locker room boys or any of that. Like these are real, genuine emotional connections, and um, and that's one of the things I, I think like we lose a lot of those kinds of stories in our storytelling because we don't like to allow men to have loving, close relationships, you know, uh, emotional discussions, um, uh, emotional connection. But it's so important. And it's also important that we model that in our storytelling, that we show people that it's possible for men to have close personal relationships, you know. Um, and uh, and so I really, I like that in here. I 
like. I mean, you know, we've got Harry's daddy issues. Daddy issues get a little old for me after a while. Oh, sure. You sure. know, but but aside from that, and I think that like it, it really comes down to his he's had this relationship with Peter. He's got this conflict. He wants to follow in his father's footsteps. He wants his dad to be proud of him, you know, even if it's just this imaginary version of his dad. Um, and I like that that conflict and the play of those relationships and how deeply Harry felt this betrayal from Peter and how deeply Peter felt, you know, his his need to lie to his best friend and lie to everybody. So um, so I actually really quite like that. Man, it, it's so complicated because uh, we we all we're all on Peter's corner. He's the protagonist. We understand why he's heroic. We understand why he's lying because he really feels uh, the responsibility of protecting the people he loves. And then, of course, there's that added layer of complexity that oh, I actually contributed to your father's death as spider-man so don't want to like reveal that i'm spider-man um but that only creates um just so much more tension that works really drives uh that relationship throughout the film and i think it works remarkably well uh kind of has a little bit of the old school smallville uh feel touch to it with the 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 secret identity and the lies that um really um pull deep rooted friendships apart so i think it works great um let's move on to uh doc ock uh who is the the main bad guy and the and the film he has been considered uh, again this is as people remembered i want to contextualize this is this is a movie that's 2004 it's 14 years old so there's there's a lot of us who have built a lot of nostalgia up and it's just whenever you encounter people who are really into comic book movies like yeah doc ock and spider-man 2 he's one of the great supervillains of comic book movies and uh, lonnie i really want to get your take do you think that doc ock is a great villain I, I think it's a low bar <laughs> because often in in these superhero movies, we end up having villains who are evil because they're evil. They're just evil because evil is what they do. Evil is as evil does, blah, blah, blah. Like, um, and it's just, they're just tying girls to train tracks because that's what they do. You know, um, one of the things that I really like about Doc Ock is that he is motivated um, by two things. One, his love for his work. And let me tell you something. I love romance stories. You know, that's... It's like one of my favorite things. It's one of my go-to genres. But one of my favorite romances is the love between a person and their work. And um, so when you have somebody who is passionate about what they do, who loves the work, um, that to me will always, always get me. So I loved how Octavius was so into his work. And then he was also like loved his wife. And we saw that relationship between them. I didn't like that we fridged Rose, you know, to motivate him. That kind of sucked. But that aside, um, I did like that here we have this guy who loves two things, right? His wife and his work. And when his wife dies and his work fails, like he has to be obsessed with that work. And we have this, this, you know, element of the inhibitor, right? That the inhibitor is what keeps it from taking him over. And then the inhibitor gets shot. I would have liked it if the inhibitor hadn't gotten shot. If he had made this choice because it was the only path in front of him, given his grief. Um, And then at the end, when he makes this active choice to sacrifice himself, because he realizes what he's done and what he's become, you know, um, I think I would have enjoyed that a little bit better. Uh, but but overall, there's some great stuff there with, with Doc Ock. 
Yeah, I think uh, it ties back into the inhibitor chip, uh, ties back into this idea that you've talked about that's pretty consistent, I think, through your criticism of the film, which is a lot of these characters are just passive passengers, and it's like, oh, okay, the AI took over his brain, so that's what made him evil. Uh, he didn't really have a choice in that. Um, I do like the idea that like his wife kind of represents, like, there's this like, weird connection between the inhibitor and his wife, and as soon as she's gone, he loses that at the same time. I think um, if you really want to really really project onto the film i think there's some uh analysis there that might might be interesting but uh no i i uh, completely agree i really like and what i like the, be- the best about um specifically the same raimi films i do these i think do that does this very well but even just the pre-mcu superhero films i think did a really great job at making these villains a uh, on uh the, the batman podcast to do with joshua uh, an animated discussion we talk a lot about like the cracked mirror so-called so it's like hey it is actually our hero looking in a mirror he sees himself so what does doc ock have in common with peter well he's an ambitious scientist peter loves science uh he's got a big dream he wants to make the world better just like peter so um in in a lot of ways peter is seeing who he wants to be as peter parker brilliant scientist has a wife he loves all that's great but the thing that's different uh, about him is that he loses his wife and we see the, the dark direction his character decides to take and um it, it really kind of skews who doc ock is and kind of separates the, the the difference between the two of them doc ock especially when once he loses the inhibitor chip again a little more passive so a little bit of criticism there but at the end of the day he decides that his dream and his work is more important than the good of the people or even his own needs versus Peter who the entire time throughout the film is struggling and trying to come to terms with how do I balance who I am as Peter Parker and who I am as Spider-Man and uh, in the end he makes that he makes that decision and, and sort of synthesizes those character traits together I think that's where they kind of part ways you see one man who who is is consumed by the demons of his work and we see Peter who actually takes a step back halfway through the movie stops working and then comes back and figures out how to make it work all together so I thought that was a really cool thing that this film did uh, did you see any of that in uh, in just kind of your viewing yeah I mean I thought it was interesting because of course we have this fractured identity right that we go to um, what I liked about Doc Ock and what again I would have really liked if his inhibitor had not blown right is that is that the power of that grief to turn you to darkness because that's all you can see when you're in grief. Like, I I like that. I would have loved to have had that discussion and that for Peter to see, you know, what happens when he shuts himself off from everything, you know, from everything else. Um, and, and that Peter's idea that he can be one or the other, you know, you can't, you are both, you have to find a way to synthesize them. So I think that like, if we, if we'd hit on that in a way that makes Ock, um, more of like an opposite number, you know, for Peter, um, and, and to give that reflection back to him in a way that, that really had a a little more clarity, I think would have been a lot more fun. Um, but, but overall, yeah, I kind of, I mean, you've got a fractured sense of personal identity for both of them but but Ock throws himself into one you know and that's it he cannot be his human side because his human side is in too much pain so he just has to be the monster and being the monster is easier than feeling that grief um so i think that i think that i would have really enjoyed seeing that i think play out a little more clearly but i definitely do see that that reflection on both of those stories with those fractured identity that sense of self that is uh, essentially split into two 
One criticism I've heard about this character is uh, he is kind of a rehash of the Green Goblin in the first film. I find that uh, the Green Goblin is... Norman Osborn's already kind of even when he's Norman Osborn is not necessarily a great guy like he's a he's a really wealthy and the movie doesn't paint him particularly villainous as Norman Osborn but he's very ambitious but he's just kind of scheming and you know very corporate versus this guy uh, you know Otto Octavius who seems a little more altruistic like he he actually seems like a good guy you'd want to have dinner with and talk to and have dinner with his wife you know so i think um i i don't know if it i don't know if i quite agree with the criticism that this is just a rehash of green goblin and spider-man one but there are a lot of similarities hey scientist accident happens that makes him lose his mind and in ways he can't control sort of thing um so uh, a little bit of criticism i might throw with the trilogy there is that it does seem somewhat repetitious though i think that it actually works better in this film um i I do want to talk about some of the sam raimi isms here but one thing i just have to i just want to give a shout out to i don't want to spend too much time but um did you uh really what did you think of uh, jk simmons's uh jameson oh god well okay jk simmons was specifically made to delight me like anytime he's in anything i adore him so he is loads of fun um his his uh um uh, JJ is is a little bit weird like it's a little bit like when we're in that moment with him it feels like suddenly I'm in his girl Friday and everybody's talking like this with this 1930s like an you know yeah. kind of staccato element to it and I loved everything that he did but it also felt like suddenly we were in a different film for a scene and then we pull out of it and everything's just a little bit different like the world of of you know where he is is just a different world and it's also much more um much more jokey you know um and so so like on the one hand i love every scene with him on the other hand it does not feel at all consistent with the tone of the rest of the movie it feels like i'm still watching a sam raimi movie but it is like i'm watching a much 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 more comedic movie yes uh, it, it's mm-hmm. it, it's wild and like the way that everyone at the daily bugle interacts with them is just it, it, everyone's got one-liners and uh when sam raimi's brother pops in and he's like he's like uh, some food got poisoned you know i don't know there's little stuff like that it's, it's so funny but yeah it, it it definitely doesn't i don't i don't feel like they weaved the comedy in uh quite as well as they could have that said i i would never ever not love jk simmons Uh, and the side note here there's actually a cut of this movie called spider-man 2.1 and in it there's some extra scenes and in one of the scenes that is not in the theatrical cut thank god because talking about going a little too far but and you talk about how kind of weird it is okay they cross the line because in this 2.1 cut you know how he actually has the spider-man costume Mm-hmm. Well, in this Spider-Man 2.1 cut, he actually puts the costume on and is dancing around in his office pretending to be Spider-Man. And oh, everyone else like is looking at him really funny, like, uh, he's kind of crazy. But that was it was just it was a little too much, and I uh did not like that. Yeah, so, I'd love to see that as a as a cut because you know, JK Simmons, but <laughs> Yes, exactly. It is wildly out of character with right, the rest of the movie. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Sam Raimiism. So you actually mentioned that you've seen uh, some of the Evil Dead films. Uh, a little bit. Are you pretty familiar with his body of work at all? Or uh, my, I'm familiar with Raimi. You know, I'm familiar with uh, Bruce Campbell. You know, because he's, he shows up everywhere and he's loads of fun. Um, but not like not enough that I would know what his hallmark, you know, Sam Raimiisms are. So I'm actually really interested for you to point them out to me. 
Okay, so firstly, there's lots of, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, lots of those z- quick zooms on the face. Uh, uh-huh, specifically sure. that, that if you watch that opening scene with the pizza, there's so much everywhere. It's like, Peter stops on motorcycle, quick cut, looks at the clock, zooming on Peter's face, zooming on clock. There's also the, the flying cam, which in the Evil Dead movies, it was just like always like, you, it was like a ghost. The evil is coming to the cabin. You'd see this, this, this camera just swooping around in the woods with some weird sound effects. It's a really great fit for Spider-Man when he's swinging on the webs, but it's still, it doesn't feel quite like we see with either the amazing Spider-Man films with Andrew Garfield or the MCU uh, Spider-Man movie we saw where it's a lot more wide shot, fixed camera, everything's stable. Like it's lots of that whooshing around. Um, There's also just lots of the really cheeseball one-liners, man. Like he loves that stuff. He loves to chew the scenery. So a lot of really on the nose lines, like uh, the, the scene whenever Doc Ock is creating, he's doing his test and then the guy comes up to Harry and he's like, this is be- this is uh, the most brilliant thing beyond your father's wildest dreams. Like, it, I don't know, it just feels like it's reciting like how the- Harry is feeling in the moment to the audience, which is a little little cheesy. And then uh, for the horror elements, I think the best scene that highlights the kind of more horror aspects we're familiar with in the Evil Dead, of course, for a PG-13 audience, not the blood and the gore, but uh, is the Doc Ock scene in the hospital where we see those claws like... Again, you, you get the the, the the perspective of the claw. That's and the way it's sw- that it swoops around and stuff. That's the, a Sam Raimi kind of stylish thing he does. Um, and also like the scene where the girl's claws are on the ground. You see her getting pulled into the darkness, and and you see the the bits of the floor coming up as she's being pulled away. It gets in that really like under your skin like cringe. Ugh. It's it's kind of campy, but like it's such a weird, disturbing thing. Like it doesn't really matter. Um, I think it's really effective. So. So I think what you're saying is that Sam Raimi is not one for subtlety. Is that? (laughs) No, not one bit. And uh, he's embraced it fully. And I kind of appreciate it um, in a weird sort of way. And it definitely makes it stand out um, for better and for worse, stand out quite a bit from other superhero films, particularly superhero films we see today um, where, you know, uh, with, with the MCU, for example, it's, uh, it's all part, everything's got to fit in that, that, that cinematic universe. Everyone's got these rules they've got to play by. And there's only so far they can push them. Um, And even though you have certain, of the films like uh for example guardians of the galaxy feels very james gunn or you have uh, thor ragnarok feels very taika watiti you can definitely feel the director's voice there's a lot of limitations because they want to make it make sure everything stays cohesive where i feel like with these spite this this like I, I i can tell you i am watching sam raimi's spider-man like i there's no no way anyone else can make this movie this way um so it has a little more of the the auteur vibe to it um that i appreciate um but at the same time uh, I think because the MCU has some restraints, a lot of times it keeps uh, directors from kind of giving in, uh, overindulging, which I think you're, you're, we're hinting out with the, the, the Jameson stuff that maybe Sam Raimi overindulges a little too much from time to time. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. And yeah, I can definitely see his um, his disdain for subtlety, you know, in a lot of these things, things are, are very clearly stated outright. And when we can't do that, we'll have, you know, like internal monologue where Peter's looking into a mirror and talking to himself or talking to Uncle Ben or, you know, any of that stuff. Um, it does feel like it, it definitely lacks some subtlety. Um, one of the nice things about having a house style, which is what happens when you're doing a TV show 
show or, you know, the MCU kind of has a house style a little bit, you know. Um, so, uh, so you do get sort of reined in that you have to sort of live within that space a little bit. And the nice thing about that is it does force you to um, kind of stretch yourself to find your creativity in ways that still work within those limitations. And sometimes having a limitation can actually really inspire a tremendous amount of creativity because you won't go to the same things that you usually do the same way that you usually tell these kinds of stories. So um, I appreciate that Sam Raimi has a fingerprint. You know, I think that that's cool. I think that that's fine. Um, But again, like if he had to work within the MCU, uh, it could inspire him to find different ways to do that sort of thing. And that could be a lot of fun, too. I don't know if we'll ever see that, but probably not. Right. I don't think he's done MCU, right? Yeah. You never say never for sure, but uh, yeah. I, I I can't imagine him coming back to Spider Man after after such a break. But, right? Uh, um, no, I, I mean you're on to something. And see what well, we we have a and uh, oh I don't want to I don't I don't want to taint Spider Man three, but we have in three where he does get limitations yeah. with the character of Venom, uh-huh. which is a character he actively disdained. Oh uh, yeah. And, but they insisted he needed to be in the movie. I think it was Avi Avrad, the guy who produced all the early Marvel films. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, that's another conversation. But I think there is some of that and. He he finds a way to make a character work in the best way he could, even though he doesn't like the character inherently. So there's some that, that does happen, but just not in the same way you would see, like you'd like on a TV show. I think that's a really great point. One thing I do like about his film in particular, though, is the way the action is shot. And the reason I like it, it's even though it's got all the goofy zooms and the swooping and stuff like that, so it makes it like very not like what we would see today. I really like that it feels overwhelmingly practical. And of course, this is 2004, so CGI was not quite as advanced as it is today. But even in most of the MCU films. Uh, were it, generally one uh, gripe I have with them is that a lot of these uh, climactic scenes feel like they come down to video games. Like it's, yeah. it's very good looking video games, but it's all CGI choreographed. And then I just kind of lose that sense of believing that it's real um, as an audience member. And I feel like here, I mean, that this train sequence feels very legit. I mean, yes, of course we know there's times when, when he's hopping around, we know he's not doing that, but, but, but the fact of the matter is I see him actually punching Doc Ock. I see him getting lifted into the air. Like there's enough of this that feels practical that I believe it. Yeah. Um, so it, that's something I really, really appreciate about this film is that it, it uses CGI smartly, doesn't overuse it. Um, and the CGI actually holds up much better than the CGI in Spider-Man one. So it, <laughs> it, pretty well, I, I was surprised rewatching it that it was pretty solid, but I think the only reason it works so well is because largely the film was shot traditionally on traditional sets so um what what did you make of that Uh, you know i thought like whenever he had like when he had may and they were you know up on the wall of the bank and all of that stuff it felt a little bit off to me there's um there's something that happens with cgi where it follows like physics as much as it can but it's always missing something you don't feel the weight you know, of like, of the elements that are in, um, in the shot. And so sometimes it can feel a little light, a little silly, almost, almost holographic in a sense, you know? And I think I, I got that when he ever, he was like, whenever Ock was carrying somebody with one of his tentacles or whatever, when he had MJ at the end, when he had May at the bank, to me, that fell a little off. That said, aside from that, I really liked the aesthetic of it. I really liked the way that the, that Ock was, um, 
was presented visually, I felt the weight of those mechanical metal arms, oh, yeah. you know, like I really felt that. And I thought that that was really good. It became a problem when we were putting a real person into that kind of hyperbolic, you know, superhero space, you know, it's just, it, that's where I felt the conflict in, in those moments. Um, but, uh, but overall I thought it was, um, I thought it was pretty good. I did feel like, I think the train sequence is probably one of my favorite favorites and not just because of the you know like you know we've got this danger he's on the train he's trying to stop it it's going to go off the cliff there's this whole thing he's pulling you know on those uh webs so hard and then um and then collapses as soon as everybody's safe like the and then they pass him overhead and they carefully lay him down and he wakes up and they all you know promise to keep his secret and there's just this really like wonderful, I think, like the way it melds with the philosophy and theme of the story itself, um, you know, while being an action sequence, which sometimes our action sequences fail to do in these movies, because they're all about the bombastic moment, as opposed to the emotional reality for our characters, you know, um, so, uh, so I actually, I think I really love that because it did have that emotional weight. And I felt like the, the effects in that moment were, were really good as well. It's a great set piece that concludes and you see him without his mask and you don't know what they're going to do for a second. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, people saw him. This is game over, right? It also hits on one of the thing I haven't had a chance to mention is, is how much I really appreciate how this movie really makes you feel like you know the citizens of New York. There's so many moments where it's just Spider-Man talking to people or they're in- interacting with Spider-Man or even as Peter Parker, you see that they feel, New York City feels very lived in and um, especially looking uh, maybe not in Marvel as much. But if you look over the a big issue like the, the DC movies have had largely and even in the Christopher Nolan movies, which I like Batman movies, I like uh, you don't really get a sense of the people in the city or like the people you you're fighting for that these heroes are fighting for and this this film does a terrific job at highlighting that i think it does a really good job it's it I, I, there is a very white perspective to this film ah. which i think makes it not age quite so well um you know we have this uh this stereotypical, you know, uh, Asian woman singing off key about Spider-Man in these various scenes, which ends up being a joke. We have him opening up with Asif Mandi, who is his boss at the pizza place, um, you know, with this very thick accent. Um, that when, when, whenever we've got somebody from, you know, who is not like white, who is not American or whatever, the way that we see, we so clearly identify those characters as other. And another thing, though, that bugged me is that we have Daniel Day Kim. Daniel Day friggin' Kim. Right. Who is Came out of just nowhere. a background person. <laughs> How do you have, I mean, I understand it was 2004. This was before Lost. Like, but still, how do you have Daniel Day Kim? And when they had him in the background, the whole time I was tense because I was like, so help me God, if they give him a thick Korean accent, I'm going to shoot somebody. And they didn't, <laughs> but they also only gave him one line yep. and he was just background scientist guy. And I'm like, that is a waste of Daniel Day Kim um, because he's fantastic. I love him. Um, so, so for me, like I was a little bit uncomfortable with how like incredibly white this community was that the only time we had people of color, they were like background people, um, or people who were from, you know, who were anything other than like your standard white American, you know, um, the, that they didn't really have any, any sense of, of development that they did feel somewhat caricatured to me. 
And again, that comes from, you know, perspective of storytellers and, and the ability to, to imagine people who are whatever particular other you would, you would have them be, right? That to imagine them as actual, like, human people. When we made a joke out of the woman singing Spider-Man, I'm like, why? You've won, you've won Asian woman. Aside from, there was the woman who, you know, had the baby returned to her, the, the, the baby. And again, the, the baby girl is the best woman in this whole movie and the best, the best, uh, you know, representation of, of any other, you know, um, that is not straight white male, you know? Um, so like for me, I, I felt like we got a sense of the humanity of the city. I absolutely think you're right of that. I just, I just wish that it wasn't such like an incredibly white humanity <laughs> that, that in a, in a city, we, we, there's so much diversity in our cities and that's one of the things that makes them so wonderful. And I would have liked to have seen that represented in a way that was not so othering to anybody who was not, you know, like your, your traditionally, you know, envisioned, you know, white character. Yeah. Yeah. De- definitely a big play on stereotypes there. That, that's a great point and uh um and that's something we've seen tremendous i mean specifically like in the the new spider-man movie um that did a fantastic job at being a lot more inclusive it gets so much better as we go and at the time like that's the way these things were done and like i get it i'm not i'm not placing a moral judgment on the people who made this movie or wrote this movie or built this movie i'm just saying that it's one of those things that that doesn't age that well and i'm really really glad that now we're moving into a space that allows for more diversity in our actual recognized as human people characters absolutely absolutely yeah. as opposed to props or uh, punchlines mm-hmm. yeah no yes. I, I completely agree and it being new york city which is uh as you say all cities are very diverse but new york yeah. city especially is known for its uh, diversity diverse. um yeah. being uh being the first place a lot of immigrants would actually land mm-hmm. so um no i think that's that's an excellent point and i think even in 2004 they probably could have done a little better honestly i think they probably um, could have but yeah. like I, i'm not interested in putting judgment and being like oh you know i'm, I'm so much better because I can see it's just like it's something that like the more we acknowledge it the more we take that out and the more we can can really be conscious about building the stories that we tell with um, with a greater sense of of what qualifies as humanity you know. No, agreed. Agreed. I'm really glad you brought that that criticism to light. So we'll go ahead and start winding down our conversation. So, uh, you know, we've got a lay of verdict on this film. And by say a lay of verdict, it's not like, is it good or is it bad? But uh, does it hold overall? Does it hold up? I mean, you've had uh, a lot of really great criticism uh, of the film. I think very reasonable. 14 years old. We're in a post MCU world now. We've got 10 years of Marvel films. Do you think this film holds up today? You know, I think that it does. I I think that the thing that I love about this movie are those deep, resonant, philosophical questions. You know, um, who are you? How is your identity realized? What is your responsibility to use the power that you have? All of these things, I think, are really, really great. I loved, too, that, that Peter's lack of connection with himself caused what I jokingly referred to as his ejectile dysfunction, that he had this... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that he had this this inability because of where he was psychologically to fully be Spider-Man in the moment and to utilize his powers properly, you know? So we saw him struggling with that sense of identity and even with his own power and what he was able to do with that. And I thought that those were, those are the things that are the strengths of this movie. Those are the kinds of things that if you can build those philosophical and thematic questions, you know, and struggles into a 
story that is, you know, superhero in nature and in scope. These stories are by, by their very nature, they are bombastic. They're full of spectacle. It is all about that, you know, exciting big action set piece. When you can tie that into a deep philosophical struggle or question, like then you get the best of what superhero movies can be. Superhero movies are made to talk about identity. They're made to talk about these struggles and they can do it so well. So when you have somebody who's telling one of these stories that doesn't forget that in the end, every story is about that human struggle. Every story is about that human experience and that we go into these big, huge scale places so that we can have a place to play out that metaphor for that personal, small, you know, micro struggle internally. Um, that's when you get the best out of these superhero movies, the superhero movies that don't forget what we're talking about, even when we're in that bombastic space. And, you know, whatever my narrative issues are with, you know, Spider-Man, I think that this is one of the things that it does really, really well. And I really appreciated that the thing i love about it is exactly what you're talking about taking these 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 small tiny personal struggles that everyone can relate to and blowing it up in like this big extravagant way and i think that the way that peter's struggle uh ties so deeply to the core themes of the movie um and, and how those themes also permeate what we see with doc ock uh, and, and to some degree with harry osborne as well i think that's really really powerful um and uh i, I think that's the type of thing i would love to see more of in today's superhero films as well on the narrative side though i think you've got a great point i think this hasn't aged super well i think definitely the lack of diversity um the gender the yeah women in this movie not not <laughs> not, not not good like I, I was actually i was actually actively disappointed when i got about halfway through and i was like oh so maybe those things don't hold up so well but i do think what this film does really well and it laid the foundation uh and set a bar at the time for hey how do you tell a powerful character story using superheroes uh you find a a great not quite opposite number but you get almost an opposite number villain uh you get a character who's wrestling with identity issues and you kind of like find a core theme that that that, that bonds them together and tell a really cool story that way i think this film does it well and i think it definitely makes it deserving to be uh, a superhero film that's going to be worth revisiting you know in you know five ten twenty years even if it continues to a we'll see how it ages in 20 years but i think it's it's a forerunner i feel like of the spider-mans is probably the most important forerunner uh film we've gotten from these early 2000 superhero films that paved the way for what we have have today comparing it to the other spider-man films you've seen where would you put this at like rank it wise well i haven't seen that many uh to be honest i and i haven't seen the new mcu one although of course i enjoyed the spider-man character when he showed up i think it was in civil war and then of course again most recently in infinity war um so i really like that particular um uh understanding of the character but i would say that like I, you know i think this is probably my favorite of the spider-man movies that i've seen despite the narrative issues which is huge for me because narrative obviously my primary value and that is what I go I want a good strong well told story with active protagonists and people making choices and all of that even with that aside because of what this movie does you know with tying all of the bombast all of the spectacle into that thematic heart and keep that heart beating for the story um, I, I just think there's fantastic stuff here I really did enjoy it 
Oh, fantastic. Excellent. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've got a, I'm, I've been struggling with this one. I, I would say it's at least my, at least my second favorite Spider-Man movie. Homecoming just, it, it uh, and I, you know, I, I'm excited to see whenever you eventually get to that, uh, for Listen Up A-Holes, what, what you think about it, because it's a lot different than any of the other Spider-Man movies. And it, I think it, there's certain things it lacks that I find present in the, in the Raimi films, especially like the, the strong core themes. So this for me ranks up there at least number two. I would say number two. Definitely better than the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies, and uh, I think it's better than the first one, too. Spider-Man 3 is another conversation, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lonnie, hey, thank you so much for taking time to join us on the Cinematic Schematic to talk about Spider-Man 2 today. Um, now, uh, reminder, one more time for our listeners, if they want to keep up with you at Chippers Media and all the other pro- cool projects you're working on, where can they find you at online? Oh, you can find all the Chipperish Media podcasts at chipperish.com. I am online, uh, typically on Twitter at Lonnie Diane Rich um, and also at Chipperish. Um, so you can pretty much find me there. All right, Lonnie, thank you so much for joining the Cinematic Schematic uh, listeners. You know where to find us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Seamasters Talk, tweeting about uh, films, comic book movies, all sorts of things. And uh, you can find uh, the Cinematropolis at thecinematropolis.com and the Cinematrop on Twitter and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Cinematropolis. Hey, webheads. Don't go swinging down Main Street just yet. We'll be right back with our talk on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse with Joshua Unruh when we return. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic, everybody. Once again, this is a special episode discussing and analyzing our favorite entries of the Spider-Man franchise, and I'm so excited about this next segment. This entire look back at Spider-Man 2 and looking at Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse has been something I've been looking forward to doing for, for quite a while, and I'm very excited to be joined in our conversation over Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse by a contributor here at thecinematropolis.com, a superhero scholar and the founder of Pulp Diction Productions. He also co-hosts the Listen Up A-Holes Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast with our previous guest, Lonnie Diana Rich, Joshua Unruh. Joshua, welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. 
Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here because this movie blew my damn mind. I've seen it four times and I still can't get over how amazing it is. Mind blown every time. So we're we're overplaying our hand a little bit here. But I just want to go ahead and jump right into the conversation and ask the the question. Why do you think Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is actually setting a new high bar for Spider-Man movies? So when they announced that Spider-Man was being integrated into the MCU and that was all we knew... The very first thing I said was, well, it better be Miles Morales because we have seen all of Peter Parker that we need to see. I still feel that way. I really feel like it was a massive misstep to integrate another version of Peter Parker. They didn't need to, right? They could have done anything. And I feel like Into the Spider-Verse is part of my justification for this, right? Like Miles is just for where we are in the year of our Lord, 2018, 2019, he's the more interesting choice on virtually every level. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, when they decided to take on this project, when they were offered this animated Spider-Man movie job, they said, well, we're only going to do it if we get to make this movie about Miles Morales. And wouldn't you know, those guys, now, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Lord and Miller also worked on Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. They worked on the Lego movie. Uh, they almost worked on Solo. They actually did uh, worked on Solo all the way through the first round of production. So these are guys who have built their career on taking what sound like really terrible ideas and turning them into great ideas. You know what? Okay, can I add? I want to add on because I, this movie centers Miles at every turn. So you cannot yes. downplay the fact that Miles is the number one protagonist. But this movie is about something else that is just as important to Spider-Man or has become just as important to Spider-Man and I think is going to become, it's been important to superheroes as a whole for decades. And I think it's going to become even more important in things like the MCU as we go forward. And that's the idea of the legacy hero. Yes, yes. Because this is Uh, also a movie that is about what it means to be Spider-Man. It manages to be a Spider-Man movie that is also an origin movie that also talks about what it is and what it means to be Spider-Man as an idea. And no one gets bored and no one gets lost in their own navel. It's phenomenal. Oh, no, it's fantastic. It is. Yes, we have seen... Uh, in cinema, we have seen a number of these kind of passing of the torch movies, a.k.a. also known as the legacy sequel, I think was the buzzword they were being labeled for a while. We saw it with uh, looking back at Creed for uh, Creed one. Sure. Uh, we, yeah. had, we had we had the Rocky franchise where Rocky's still a player, but he hands it off to Michael B. Jordan to to, to uh, as Adonis Creed to take the lead. We saw it in uh, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. We still have Han and Leia and Luke around. But they're handing off the movies and the franchise off to Ray and Finn and Poe and that next generation. So this is a notion we're seeing. Uh, we've seen a lot on the big. Surprisingly, we've seen a lot of on the big screen before we really got to the superhero movie piece of it. Uh, but I think I think that's a great point, Joshua, because what this movie does that, that I love so much is that outside of Peter Parker without even us even having to ask the question, it goes and identifies exactly what it is to be Spider-Man. What is it about Spider-Man? Not necessarily Peter Parker, but also Peter Parker that makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. And can someone else fill those shoes? And, uh, you know, comic book readers have, have fallen in love uh, with Miles Morales. Uh, he, he's a phenomenal character, not even that old, but I feel like he's really swung his web way into our hearts over the last several years. And to see this story told on the big screen, 
not only being an origin story for Miles Morales, but also still check all the studio boxes, which I find hilarious because it still has Peter Parker. I guarantee you a studio, the studios had a laundry list about, well, if you're going to tell this story, you got to do X, Y, Z. Well, guess what? They still got Peter Parker in there, both Peter and Peter B. Parker. Uh, they were able to work in characters like Spider-Gwen. Uh, they, they, they threw in some of the, 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 Wong, the Spider-Man noir and all these other versions of Spider-Man I didn't even know I wanted and they made them on, they, they put them on the big screen in a way I love and you know what's great is they're all still Spider-Man yes I mean that's how we're able to really drill down and identify what does it mean to be Spider-Man and and I mean I think it's basically confirmed at this point that they're working on a Spider-Gwen uh, solo f- or she, she won't be solo it's already I think called Spider-Women <laughs> oh fantastic um, so, so we're gonna get that like even more so when we see that from her perspective. I mean, yeah, it's just it's about you've got kind of a schlubby Peter Parker who's just like an underachiever and you've got this very accomplished Peter Parker and you've got um, Penny who is has a robot and is from manga, apparently, and even a cartoon version. And yet at their core, you've nailed it. They're all still what we would consider to be Spider-Man. And we get to watch Miles in a way kind of start out there because he's a good guy from jump, but we see him like grow up into Spider-Man. Yeah, no, I, I think that you know that's the other other piece that I think is really brilliant is this is still an origin story for Miles Morales. But here's the thing. I've been on, I mean, honestly, for like the last five years or so, I've been saying I'm kind of over origin stories. They are done to death. We know the formula. We know the template. No more origin stories. And yet Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse rolls into town and blows my mind because it is a an origin story that feels so fresh and new and of a different cloth than what we've seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or even in the DC movies with Wonder Woman and Aquaman. It feels like its own thing that still hits on all of the, I guess, checks all the boxes of an origin story without feeling like it's a slave to some sort of formula. And I think it does that largely uh, by playing up youth today uh, by playing up uh, the diversity by playing up uh, Miles Morales who grows up in a multi ethnic family uh, a, a Miles Morales who is uh, by all accounts Gen Z he was very tech savvy much different than the Peter Parker even the Peter Parker we saw we, we see in the MCU this is his, his own version it's it, the journey might have the same beats along the way but that journey is also full of a, a really wildly different and imaginative story and he has all the I, I see that these other spider people as mentors all of them all, he's able to learn certain aspects about what it means to be spy, uh, spider-man from all of them and because of that it doesn't feel like he's going through the motions because they're all bringing up different aspects of what he needs to be successful and taking over the mantle of spider-man i think that's the other way that it diverges so hard from any of the established origin templates is that he has a mentor the, the rest of our big origin stories, certainly from the last 10 years, they're largely forging their own way. They do, they're not legacy heroes, right? They, they are, they have to figure out who they are. But here, we not only have somebody that Miles has to live up to in the fully spoiled, right? The Peter that dies at the beginning of the film, but he actually gets mentored. I mean, he has somebody show up and say, no, man, it's got to be like this. It's, it's, I mean, not, not in an overbearing, I'm the boss of you way, but just in a, listen, we've all been there, man. And if you're not ready, it's fine. You'll get there. But this is happening now, you know? 
Yes, he's, he's shepherded into the role. So this is a role that someone else has carved out and kind of paved the way for. And uh, let, let's talk about some of those things. Like for Spider-Man, what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man? Well, of course, great power comes great responsibility. I love the fact that this movie has a few running jokes with that. But the idea of, oh, my God. Aunt May needs her medication, but also this bank across the street is getting robbed, and I only have time to do one of these things. How do I pull it off? How do I pull it off and also still try to live a normal life, right? Like, it's it's that constant tension between looking out for his family, himself, but also fighting crime and protecting New York City. And I think this that movie does a really good job at honing in on that particular responsibility. Well, and I think that that, uh, that tension that you, that you mentioned is perhaps even sharper for Miles than it ever was for Peter because you have his dad, the police officer who doesn't like the vigilante on one side, mm-hmm. and his uncle who is a criminal, a thief, a, a by all accounts, a very bad man to everyone who doesn't know him as Aaron, right? Like to his nephew, he's, you know, something of a hero, but to when he's the prowler, he is a villain, you know, and miles is pulled in those two directions constantly. Like in, right. It's, I mean, it's, if anything, that, that tension between um, managing your home life and your superhero life is sharper for miles than it's ever been for Peter with the possible exception of that time that Dr. Octopus almost married Aunt May in the comics, which I think they make allusion to in this movie. Well, talking about illusions, uh, there is a reading of this where you, I mean, I think it's a pretty straightforward reading if you really want it to be, uh, that this is actually the Spider-Man at the beginning of this movie is actually Sam Raimi, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, just animated. And the reason I say that is because they most of those scenes they recreate at the beginning when they're being narrated by Peter Parker, like the normal, like the Peter Parker we know, right? It's all scenes recreated from Raimi films. I think the only pushback against that, and and I think it's pretty strong pushback, honestly. Um, I I mean, I need to see it more before I really, like, solidify this thesis. But I kind of get the feeling that uh, Peter B. Parker is more the Raimi (laughs) Spider-Man. But that there's some overlap in their histories, right? And the reason I say that is this Aunt May, Lily Tomlin, ladies and gentlemen, um, is very different than Raimi's Aunt May in 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 good ways. And this Dr. Octopus is a wholly other person, which they, they don't say she's the one and only. So, you know, there's space for Alfred Molina's Doc Ock to fit. Sure, but, sure. And, and, and that's just, and that honestly, that's just fun speculation. I think that was a nice nod because at one point they actually did consider, and this got scrapped along with a bunch of other ideas they had for the movie. But at one point, I think Tobey Maguire was supposed to be the voice of the, of the you know, uh, universe a spider-man oh, okay. the, first, the mile morales but it got scrapped in favor of chris pine they originally were going to work in like you know tom holland and um andrew garfield as well and both of those got scrapped uh that whole idea got scrapped which i'm kind of bummed about not no this is no shade on the movie at all but it just seemed like a fun idea but no i don't i don't think it's necessarily like actually the same universe that's kind of some fun headcanon i think they leave open for interpretation though well the reason the other reason i say that is uh that i love Raimi's movies okay so this is not actual shade on them but that peter parker doesn't really get his shit together you know, um, that's true. He feel I mean, he is an effective Spider-Man, but he never finds that balance. Right. And we're left in a very are they together or not with him and MJ that I think plays out strongly into Peter B. Parker. Right. Um, mm-hmm. The the one our main Peter, the one that 
dies just seems to have it together too much to be Raimi's Spider-Man. But that's me. But that's my viewing. I, and I and that is loving Raimi's Peter Parker. Okay, so I, I mean he he's on top of the world. He's even got a Christmas album that he sings on. So which I thought I, again I thought the humor in this movie was was just was, was spot on hilarious. Still feels like Spider-Man, but also really silly <laughs> yeah and in meta silly like winking at the audience with this is stuff you recognize we promise you know right yeah right right which is something lord miller again that kind of they're not the the directors they are producers of the film but something they have been known for is being very meta uh now i i want to take it back to spider-man 2 because uh, as our listeners heard in the first half of today's episode i uh, might talk with lonnie Spider-Man 2 is one of the more beloved Spider-Man films, but it's not, uh, you know, over the years, maybe it's not quite as perfect or ideal as we remember, although I do maintain that it's an exceptional film. What do you think that Into the Spider-Verse gets right that maybe Spider-Man 2 may have missed or not elaborated on? Well, so one of the failings of Raimi's Spider-Man films. And and it's a failing that kind of gets more glaring as time goes on, honestly, to me at least, is that Raimi was pretty clearly doing the Spider-Man of his youth, the Spider-Man of the 60s, that just happened to be set in the early 2000s. Right. And that doesn't not work. Like, I think it works very well. But here we are shown um, a mixed-race Black and Latinx Spider-Man in a Brooklyn that is just a character in a way that Queens never was, or really New York was only in the people, right? In the people's reaction to Spider-Man, not, not the actual sort of, you know, living, breathing city, which I do think you get right. here. Um, so it's not even necessarily a failing of Raimi's because I don't think he was trying to do anything like that, but it does feel dated, in a, in a way, because it, because honestly, it felt dated the day it came out, but not in a bad way, like in, in a thematically on point, in a purposeful way. But, you know, you throw 25 years on top of that and it's like, oh, right. well, it's not that long. You throw, you know, uh, 17, 18 years on top of that <laughs> and it start it starts to it's aged not great. You know, not, not great. Yeah. Well, like you said, like you said, it was dated the day it came out. I mean, obviously, uh, but on purpose, I don't want to make it sound like I, Spider-Man 2 is the gold standard until Into the Spider-Verse came out, honestly. Um, right. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, so it was just R- Raimi was doing that on purpose. This is the Spider-Man of the 60s. It just happens to be 2002, you know, Um and so that's not bad. It's not a poor choice. It's just we get a little further on. We get 10 years of MCU movies, and uh, we're just now about to get a woman added as a headliner. We've got 10 years of uh, of Marvel movies, and we have yet to have a person of color headlining one of them. You know, um, it, I, so I guess that's the thing that it gets wrong. Honestly, it, it was wrong in a way, the day it came out, but it's a it's a thing that gets wronger for me the longer we go. If, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense. And I and I will preface this, and and it it goes back to the idea that yes, it was always wrong, but also in two thousand four when Spider Man two came out. It was only our second Peter Parker movie. Yeah. We yeah. had not received an onslaught of superhero movies. So it was more or less a little it was a little more okay for ever for them to have no, absolutely. There was not a decision there. Yes, there was not a decision there to 
to keep Peter White. Okay, but here we are all these years later, and it is a choice. It was a choice when they went with Tom Holland to keep Peter White and right. and Peter, frankly. And it was not right. a choice that was guaranteed. It was not one that they had to do. And I mean, and again, not 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 because I'm the smartest guy in the world all the time, but I mean, I knew that when they decided to do it. And like I say, Into the Spider-Verse proves that. So that's one of the places where I think Into the Spider-Verse just blows Spider-Man 2 away. Yeah, no, I completely agree. This feels more of our time. Uh, I, almost exactly of our time, really, versus even when Spider-Man 2 came out, it felt like a, almost like a tribute or an homage to the 1960s and 70s Spider-Man comics. Another thing for me that really does it is how much thought went into the visuals. Not not just the look of the fact that you've never seen an animated movie that looks like this, but just visual choices, that the colors that things change to when their spider sense goes off are different for each spider person, and it matters, right? And yeah. that they mix when they're near one another, when they sense each other, it's the colors mixing, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, when you have uh, Miles falling the first time he tries to be spider-powered, <laughs> And then you have him rising the next time that he – right? Like they're, all these things are mirrored. And when when they decide to animate sound effects sometimes but not all the time, I, this is just – now I also like Raimi's visual style a lot. And I like it a lot in Spider-Man 2. But Into the Spider-Verse is doing visual – Late motifs and choices and color and all kinds of things that, frankly, never occurred to anybody on a Spider-Man movie before. Oh, no, not even close. And I will say some of that, some of that, I don't know about all of it, some of it is definitely the benefit of being animated, first and foremost. And I think that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse makes the greatest argument we've seen for why superhero movies should be animated since... Batman Mask of the Phantasm back in the early 90s. That's I mean, very fair. Is, it's very it is, fair. It is, it is the, the animation is very innovative. Uh, ever since Pixar kind of showed up on the block way back with Toy Story, that's been kind of the standard everyone's been looking, oh, what is Pixar doing? DreamWorks, what is Pixar doing with 3D animation? That's what everyone's been clinging to. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, huge innovation in animation. The fact that the frame rate's actually lower, but because of that, they're able to, things that things pop more the comic book uh, elements yeah. pop more you're well, able to recognize those color those different motifs they, they they're more visualized and you can and there's more time to breathe and you're in despite this movie being incredibly kinetic and fast-paced thrown at you because they did little tiny tweaks like that that haven't been done before at least haven't been common in a blockbuster superhero movie uh really clicks in a way that we've never seen before i would not have ever wished to see a comic book animated before this movie, because I would have said comic like my superhero comics do it one way. I want to see it done differently for a movie. And this is different. This is not just animating a comic book. But at the same time, this is clearly a group of people who were trying to figure out what does what does the things that comic books do that film can't. How do we do that on film or how do we approximate that? How do we make this like the experience of reading a comic book. And sometimes it's really on the money with like the use of Bende dots in yes. the coloring. And sometimes it's more subtle, like when they choose to animate the sound effects for some things, but not other things, you know, um, 
it's, well, even the way, like, even the way he, like, when he's internally monologuing, you can see the little bubble, the blurb. Sometimes there's thought balloons. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's, uh, yeah, these are, yeah, we, I mean, we haven't ever seen anything like that before. And, and I wouldn't, I, and I'm just being fair. I wouldn't have wanted to if you had just said the words to me, we're going to make an animated comic book. Please don't. You know, but these people showed up and did it and knocked it out of the park and made me, old comic book fan, very happy with that. I think that's really, uh, really great. And the only movie I have had coming off of this film, the only film that I could think of that I saw anything remotely like this was another comic book adaptation, though not an adaptation of a superhero comic book movie. And that was Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the closest. And that was 2010. So nine years ago. And I, I just, it, it and, and even then that was a movie that had a lot of visual effects in it, but it was still live action. It, that so, is, that is as close. Yes. I love this example. This is the dichotomy or, or this is the continuum that's the word i'm looking for this is the continuum you're looking at like like scott pilgrim is still live action but it's also an animated comic book in the best ways it does a great job yes. of that but when you are freed from any of those constraints here's animation showing you how to like oh yeah you did it let us show you how to really do it you know right you get Take a little bit of sin city hey. also which I, I really appreciated how much like the comic how much sin city caught the visual style of the comic that it was based on. I, I love oh, that yes. stuff. Yep. But Sensei, this Sensei, is doing I something that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. over and above. Just next level that whole concept. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree. So uh, next question is just, uh, do you think, I mean, I think you've already said it, but let's just throw it out there. Is this the best Spider-Man movie? I, I would yeah, say and, so. And like, I, I don't even think it's a contest, honestly. Um, I actually have uh, uh, this is a controversial opinion. Um, Spider-Man two and amazing Spider-Man. The first one are basically tied for me and have been for some time, but into the spider verse just shows up and completely, I, I mean, how many spider people did we get in this? And no one was ever confused, right? Like there is tons of emotional nuance going on for multiple characters at the same time, but it's also incredibly kinetic and an action movie too. You know, you don't lose that piece. Yeah. I think this is bar none, the best Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree. This is, it's got the, some of the best action we've ever seen in any superhero movie. I'm not even saying just in a Spider-Man legit, movie. I mean, legit. legit. The, this, the, the images in this movie are iconic. The scene of Miles Morales falling up, is breathtaking and it's not just breathtaking because it's a great image an incredible image but it's the mo- emotional moment you have tied to that image whenever he finally makes the leap and you see him hanging upside down with the music playing it's he is stepping into this role he is growing into it and i think that that, that is a cinematic moment that is going to be a great cinematic moment that's going to stick with our, our, our entire generation until someone does it again in like 30 years i i really think this is uh stellar spider-man i think it's up there that that moment is just as iconic if not more iconic than anything in the sam raimi films so i have to agree it mixes a lot of things i really like it's spider-man of course we love that it's miles morales love that love that we got in the spider gwen stuff i didn't know i wanted like schlubby <laughs> peter b parker that, right. i mean great great comedic relief but also there's you never you never mistake him for the comedic relief that you just don't that you don't care about or even the porky what, sorry what, which spider one spider ham Por- yes the spectacular spider ham even the spectacular spider ham who is the comedic 
belief that's not really got a lot of depth. Even he has a couple moments where you kind of there's some there's some pathos there. So I think this movie is really brilliant. Uh, it gave me a lot of things I didn't know I wanted, which in my mind is always the the mark of an incredible film. When you go into a movie and you're expecting something great, but not only do you get something great, you get something great plus something you didn't know what you wanted. And this movie delivers that in spades. I can't wait to see what they do uh, with the the next Spider-Man movie. And honestly, I really hope Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse informs in one way or another, maybe not maybe not plot-wise, but uh, in a, maybe a thematic uh, choices way, influences how Marvel proper handles Spider-Man and the MCU. Because honestly... I've said this on a lot of podcasts, so I'll say it here. While the MCU is an incredible achievement, and I do love it. I do. There's a lot of great movies in there that I love. I still think my favorite superhero movies of all time, generally speaking, looking back, are not MCU movies. And I think Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse is uh, like up for me up there or even better than like Logan or The Dark Knight or something like that, where I'm like, this is a great film. This is a terrific film that I'm going to be talking about in like 20 years that I'm going to be telling people this is, as you put it, one of the gold standards, if it currently the gold standard, if it's not in 20 years of what a, uh, how to do a great Spider-Man movie and how to how to I, and I can't believe the alternate parallel dimensions. They, they worked it all in, man. I'm going off on all sorts of tangents. No, this it's, it's absolutely flabbergasting what they are able to do in this movie without confusing anyone. I, I, right. I mean, I just the, the the Flash television show has been doing multiple Earths and alternate realities for a while. And I thought it was bonkers when they did it, because, again, this is my bread and butter. You know, I've been doing this since I was uh, six years old. Right. So it doesn't right. confuse me. But when they start doing that on, uh, you know, primetime television, I'm like, what? universe am I living in literally and then right. you have this huge like, like big budget a blockbuster you know kind of release of a character that I mean a lot of people were like we've seen it I mean even if you really wanted him in the MCU you were like we've still kind of seen it you know and then this thing just comes out of nowhere and flips all the lids it's uh yeah I, yeah, I, if the, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I, I wish I, I would love to know how those conversations went at an executive level. Uh, so we got an animated Spider-Man movie. It's going to have like seven Spider-Man in it. And uh, But don't worry. It's going to be an origin story. I know we've already done two origin stories in the last 20 years, but we're going to throw a third one out there with all these Spider-Men. It's going to be animated. You know what I mean? Like it just it like it, it has it's just on paper. It sounds like it's it's not going to be accessible because, like you said, seven different Spider-Men utilizing a plot device like alternate realities. How is that not confusing? Oh, my gosh. Um, and how much pathos is there in the kingpin? Right. What we, right. I mean, well, the villain yeah. of this thing, the thing that kicks off the reason that it's a multiverse movie is a crime boss who misses his family? Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, that's another tangent because you just reminded me how we got to the multi-universe thing was through this, like, incredibly human desire, you know? Oh. Yeah. No, and I think it's uh, I, I think that's brilliant, too, because uh, uh, I you know, growing up with the animated Spider-Man cartoon in the early 90s, uh, you know, Kingpin always stood out to me as one of his uh, Spider-Man's big bads. I know he's more recently been far more affiliated with uh, Daredevil, but I was I always thought even with the Sam Raimi films, I was like, you know, it'd be cool if one day we could get Kingpin in a, a Spider-Man movie. 
And we've seen, what, uh, six Spider-Man movies that didn't have Kingpin, so I just assumed it was never going to happen. So when they show up in this movie, uh, Kingpin, voiced by Lee Schreiber, he's not particularly complicated at all, but he has, but you understand what drives him. Yeah. And he, he it's not the money. It's not the, he's the got business that, payoff. Right? He's it's, got it's the just, money. He he's got the respect. The only thing that being the Kingpin can't give him is his family back. And then he goes, you know what? I think I can make the fact that I'm the Kingpin give me my family back. And I'm going to rip the reality asunder to do it. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at that. That's your villain who doesn't really get that much screen time, really. Because how could he? We've got all this other stuff right. going on. But look how how serious, how human, how vulnerable mm-hmm. your antagonist is in his wants and needs. Um yeah. It's all about, man, it's all about making that screen time count, too. Because going back to another Sam Raimi Spider-Man film, Spider-Man 3, do you remember when everyone was losing their minds? They're going to have three villains in this movie. They're going to have Venom and Harry and Sandman in one movie. There's no way they can pull it off. And while, yes, that didn't work out in that movie, this is a testament of how, this is one of a, one of a few great examples of how you actually make an ensemble of villains work well. In this movie, we have Kingpin is the main bad. We all get that main bad guy. But you Green Goblin shows up. You, you got, got the Doc whole, Ock. The whole Sinister Six at one point. Yes. You have Kingpin and Tombstone and the entire Sinister Six. And they all do exactly the amount of work that they need to do to fulfill their role and also give the world color. Because it could have been Doc Ock and a bunch of guys in black suits with machine guns. Yep. And that would yep. have messed up May's house plenty. But they went hard for it and said, nope, we are doing the Sinister Six. It's... It's a not just a bold choice, but a choice that literally should not work. Like very yeah. few, if anyone else, very few creators, if any, could have pulled that off. Yep. And they win the mile. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's it. That's why it's the best one. That's why it's going to be the standard for a long time. Well, Joshua, we're about out of time here today, but the last question I have to ask, and we'll try to keep it uh, short, is just where would you like to see Spider-Man movies go from here? Caleb, I don't know. I really don't know. Like, I think that the MCU Spider-Man is fine, you know, Um, but I don't expect them to do anything remotely as interesting or as powerful, frankly, as what we got with Into the Spider-Verse in the MCU. I just don't. I mean, there's too much Spider-Man baggage there. You Mm -hmm. know, there's too much other stuff going on. We're just not going to get that. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope when I go to Far From Home, my lid is flipped, but I'm just honestly not expecting it. I think where we go from here is Spider-Women, honestly. That's really the only way that I think that this can be topped. Um, And maybe Miles on his own, you know? That's it. I just want more of this team and these characters. That's that's where it has to go from here. Yep. And again, another sign of a great film and a great story is i would love a spinoff with any of these spider-man well other than maybe spider-ham but you know like that could be like a youtube miniseries or something like that i don't need a feature film of spider-ham in fact he was i was terrified he was going to be the weak link of this yep but they used him exactly the right amount and i would watch you know three minute web series you know three minute episode web series of him all day yeah i'd I'd be down for it yeah so but i would i would like i would i would love to see a a penny parker short film i would love to see a a spider-man noir short film maybe a feature if you could pull it off i would love to see yeah spider women spider gwen bring me that story i would still and and the nice thing about the peter b parker thing is 
it shows us a Peter Parker that we haven't seen before quite we haven't seen him in his 40s after his life yeah. has kind of fallen apart like even that's a story that i would i could see i could i could be like yeah sure i'll take it that that's the type of peter parker story i'd actually want to see because we so, haven't uh, seen it before exactly so you know what that's where you have to go that's where spider-man movies have to go from here they have to go into a place that we haven't seen spider-man go before they they cannot change the fundamental stuff of what makes spider-man spider-man but they have to take that foundation into places we haven't seen Mm. hardly agree one last note i'm gonna make before we close is uh i find this this is another podcast maybe you and i can have it at some point the trend in movies right now is really interesting about giving the power back to the people we saw it with the last jedi uh where the force is not just for the elite bloodline but kind of for everybody and we i actually saw uh the kid that would be king it's a uh, uh, joe cornish film about king arthur and same thing it's like oh the bloodline didn't actually mean anything uh, and here we have it again in spider-man it's it's not about it's not about being this divine destined special person but it's more about being the person who can step into the role when they when they're needed to and i just find that really compelling the idea that anybody can be a superhero it's not just what we're not just waiting around for one person that special person to be a superhero no we can all do it we can all be spider-man i think that's just a great message and i find it to uh, i think it's a really fascinating part of a trend we're seeing in a lot of blockbuster films right now about kind of kind of deconstructing the the myth of the destined ones, so to speak. No, I, I agree completely. Um, without running too far down that rabbit trail, I agree with you so hard that, as you know, I am a big Batman fan. You and I have a podcast about Batman oh, yes. the Animated Series. Yes. And I don't want to see any more Batman movies. We've seen them, dot, yes. dot, dot, All unless they're about the Bat family. Because because yes. I'm I, for years I've been saying the 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 most interesting thing about Bruce Wayne is not that he's unique it's that he makes other Batman right 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 we have never been allowed to see this except in Schumacher things which are which we're doing a thing but they're not the thing that I want done now I mean hey we had we what are you talking about we had Batgirl and Robin and Batman and Robin I mean come on it's been a minute let's do it again <laughs> and let's do it like this right let's do it about the about the legacy you know um so yeah without without sort of moving the spotlight too much it's like that's how much i agree with you is that people have been saying to me so who do you want to see as batman and i was like nobody until i see a script and the script needs to be about the family right cuz that's another thing this movie is about more than one family. Oh, it's, yes. We, we will do another half hour on the show. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Joshua. Uh, so, again, that podcast for those of you who want to hear us talk more about Batman is called An Animated Discussion Dash DCAU. We uh, currently are doing uh, weekly recaps of Batman the Animated Series, and we'll eventually go on to Superman the Animated Series, Justice League, Batman Beyond, all that good stuff. So check that out. Everything. Um, all right, Joshua, this has been a great talk. Thanks so much for hopping on. I've been wanting to talk to you about this for months. The holidays and life got in the way when the movie was in theaters, but here we are on the eve of the Blu-ray release. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse comes out March 19th on Blu-ray. is currently available digitally if you just can't wait for that hard copy. Uh, so uh, I was really glad to be able to talk uh, with Lonnie about Spider-Man 2 and with you about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. has been a great talk. Before we go, uh, where can listeners keep up with you and your other work online? 
Well, if you just want to react to anything that I've said on here, I love having conversations about superheroes with anybody who will talk to me about them. And the easiest way to do that is on Twitter. I'm at Joshua Unruh, J-O-S-H-U-A-U-N-R-U-H. And I do have a Batman podcast with Caleb, and I do an MCU podcast with Lonnie, and I do a couple of other podcasts as well, all of them centered on superheroes. And you can keep up with all of that at pulpdiction.biz. That's Diction with a D. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, of course, you can always find me tweeting about uh, all of the movies, television, video games, things, especially related to superheroes. Here we are in March. Uh, uh, Captain Marvel is out. We're a mere, I guess, days away at this point uh, from Avengers Endgame. So lots of superhero talk coming at you. And that's on Twitter at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. Or, of course, you can keep up with all of our work on the Cinematropolis at thecinematropolis.com uh, and uh, on Twitter and Instagram at thecinematropolis. And remember, if you enjoyed the Cinematic Schematic, make sure to rate and subscribe. Joshua Unruh, Superhero Scholar, thanks so much for joining Cinematic Schematic again today. My pleasure. I have loved being here talking about this movie that has just soaked up most of my brain space for the last several months. I didn't say it before, but the Oscar-winning movie. Thank God. The Oscar-winning movie. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you again next time. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Cinematic Schematic discussing the Spider-Man films with the hosts of the Listen Up A-Holes podcast, Lonnie, Diane Rich, and Joshua Unruh. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review to help us get discovered by more listeners like you. And if you really enjoyed it, please make sure to go ahead and share this episode with your friends. This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The Cinematic Schematic score was composed by Vinnie Hogan and the podcast was hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. Musical selections include songs from Danny Elfman's Spider-Man 2 score and Daniel Pemberton's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse score. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you again next time. <laughs>